I think the most important um, thing that people should know is that they don't have to suffer. We know that people who have lots of hot flashes have increased risk for heart disease. Um, we know that people who lose sleep because of hot flashes, you know, they don't fare as well cognitively, so they may feel like they're not working as well. And it's so important to talk to your provider about your symptoms that if they're not helping you to seek someone else who will. Vasomotor symptoms, also known as hot flashes, are one of the most common and most disruptive symptoms of the menopause transition. For some people, they can happen more than seven times a day. And once hot flashes start, people experience them for an average of two years, but sometimes as long as 10 to 12 years. On this episode of the Women's HealthCast, Dr. Genevieve Neal Perry joins us to talk about a new understanding of what causes hot flashes, what hot flash management has looked like until now, and her recent studies examining new treatment options for these symptoms. Dr. Neil Perry is the Robert A. Ross Distinguished Professor and Chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. From the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's HealthCast. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Genevieve Neal Perry to the Women's Health Cast today. Dr. Neal Perry is the Robert A. Ross Distinguished Professor and Chair of the University of North Carolina's Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Thank you so much for spending a little time with me today. Well, thank you, Jacqueline, for having me. Today, we'll spend a little time um, talking about some of your new research in uh, menopause symptom management, which I'm pretty excited to learn about. Uh, before we dive into that, can you tell me what your chair role at the University of North Carolina Department of OBGYN looks like? What do you do in that role? Oh, yeah. So as a chair at the University of North Carolina, I have uh, an incredible opportunity to work with a diverse group of amazing people who are really dedicated to advancing women's health. Um, I have a, a range of uh, physicians and learners who work with me as well as staff. We have um, almost every division you can imagine in women's health. We just have a great mix of people um, from uh, pretty much all over the country who have expertise in a variety of, uh, of areas and it's a lot of fun. Um, what is your personal expertise? Do you ha have clinical interactions and why do patients come to see you? Yes, I am a reproductive endocrinologist. And um, I always, when I, when I tease the students, I, you know, I say, well, I'm the only one who can talk about sex all day and it's okay. Um, so my area of, um, of research expertise is um, the neuroendocrine access and specifically understanding how age and, and responsiveness to hormones change. And um, also in terms of clinically, um, I am a full scope clinician. I do IVF, I do uh, endocrine um, based care and endocrine related disorders that affect the reproductive system. So, uh, you know, I, I get to do it all, which is great. So you're in Wisconsin with us right now. Tomorrow you will be delivering the keynote lecture at our department research day. And I've had a chance to sort of preview your presentation. You'll be talking about new developments in menopause symptom management. From your perspective, what do you think has been the most exciting or 
promising new development in menopause management over the last few years? Yeah, you know, when you think about menopause, you know, it affects half of half of the world, right? And to imagine that it's been, uh, you know, a very long time where we just didn't understand the biology of it. And I think that has been rate limiting in terms of having treatment that is really directed at the cause. And um, back in 1991 and early 90s, um, someone by the name of Naomi Rands um, did some studies looking at um, the brain and specifically looking at the the, um, hypothalamus, an area of the brain that's important for reproduction and and a lot of hormonal um, elements of our health. She noticed that in um, women um, who were menopausal compared to women who weren't, there was these cells that looked different. And um, and it was really interesting because one of the things that's different in those that are menopausal and those that are not is, is the uh, absence of estrogen. She then went on to do some studies um, showing that she could basically re- um, show the same thing in, in monkeys who had been um, oophorectomized, meaning their ovaries were removed. And then if you take the ovaries out, you see the same thing that you see in older women in the brain. And if you add estrogen, you see what you see in young women. So that was kind of the first clue that there are these cells in the hypothalamus that may be important um, for um, things that are changing with hormone um, loss and and menopause. And so over the last um, uh, two decades, it's been a series of, of work um, done in the chromatur lab, in my lab, uh, and others that have demonstrated that there are these neurons called candy neurons. Um, why are they called candy neurons? Because they make a few different neural um, transmitters. They make a, a peptide called, called kiss peptin. And, and this peptide we had learned before was involved in kind of ovulation. And then we know that it changed with um, loss of estrogen and a change in a very specific region of the brain. Um, There is also another hormone called dynorphin. Um, And and then um, there is also, uh, so there's kispeptin, um, dynorphin, and neurokinin. And so you have these three peptides or these neurons. And in the absence of estrogen, these neurons become really fat, what we call hypertrophied. And then they kind of release these neuropeptides that stimulate the neurons that control heat. And so what we've learned over the last two decades is that these neurons are releasing hormones that are triggering these hot flashes. And what estrogen does is it basically keeps these neurons quiet. So, you know, we did a lot of this work in, um, in, mouse models and um, non-human primates, which are monkey models. And then um, we've been able to move and transition this work and, and, and these studies into humans. And so the first kind of set of stor- uh, studies that were done were studies that showed that this neurokinin, um, if you activate this neurokinin receptor, um, that you actually can trigger a hot flash in young women. And you can recapitulate all of the symptoms of feeling anxious, palpitations, and some of the things that people have with hot flashes if you give women this, this neuropeptide. And so where the 
where the research has um, kind of um, evolved is the development of a, a uh, pharmacological agent that can block that specific receptor. And that if you block that receptor, then you can actually block hot flashes. That sounds incredibly exciting and hopeful to me. Um, can we take a moment and a step back in case any of our listeners don't know what a hot flash is? Can you help me um, understand a little bit? Yeah, what what's going on there? Uh, yeah, so hot flashes um, can be caused by um, people who are making the transition into menopause. And it's usually related to the loss of hormones, specifically estrogen. Um, but it can also be caused by drugs that reduce the estrogen production, so a drug like Lupron. And so, you know, what makes a hot flash special is that unlike when you're sweating in your exercise where your whole body becomes hot and sweaty, the hot flash is really primarily of the upper body. And it's just kind of this onset that, you know, comes on and you just feel really hot and flushed pretty much from the, the hips up unlike if you're exercising. Um, there are things that can trigger hot flashes. Um, eating spicy food can trigger hot flashes. Um, if, you're, if you're in a warm room and, you have, and you're warm, it can trigger a hot flash. Um, stress can be associated with hot flashes. Um, Sometimes um, drinking red wine can be associated with hot flashes. Uh, so there are a lot of things, caffeine, that can trigger hot flashes, things that many of us use in our daily lives. So you can imagine if you're someone who's impacted, breaking out in a sweat all of, all of a sudden, it's kind of uncomfortable. And, you know, in some cases, you, you know, you may need to even change your clothes, um, particularly um, individuals who have hot flashes at night where it wakes them up. Then they feel, you know, they're tired during the day. They don't think as well. So hot flashes can be pretty disruptive. Um, they, you know, and when we look at women in particular or people who are menopausal, as much as 70% of people have them. Once they um, start, so that, that does sound incredibly common, how long do they last? Are we talking a, a set of months where you would get a frequent hot flash or years? Like what's the average or expected amount of time that someone might have hot flashes? Yeah, so th that's a great question. And it actually varies by race and ethnicity. Um, there are racial disparities in the duration uh, as well as the uh, severity and frequency of hot flashes. So for women who, uh, who may be of Asian descent, um, or Asian ethnic uh, background, they may have us like, you know, three to four years. Um, women who are African-American can have up to 10 to 12 years. So they last anywhere from three to four up to 10 to 12. So there's a whole range on average of about somewhere between eight to 10. That is a long time. And, and some people can have severe ones where, you know, you're having this happen more than seven times a day or night. You talked already a little bit about what we think causes them. So it's a neurotransmitter response due to lack of estrogen. Did I did I remember that correctly? Up till now or are kind of through now, what has been um, the common treatment or management 
uh, expectation for hot flashes? What kind of options have people had available historically? Yeah, historically, um, women and people with hot flashes were treated with estrogen. Um, and then there was the Women's Health Initiative, which was trying to understand whether estrogen hormone treatment um, improved health, um, health outcomes or increased risk for things like breast cancer and um, heart disease. And, and that study was done in, a, in an older group, and, and they did find that there were some things that were uh, negative in older women um, using hormone replacement who did not have hot flashes. And so they were being treated, but it wasn't necessarily being treated because there was an indication treated. When they looked at that study to try to understand a little bit more, they found that the risk um, that you see in older women is not the same as you see in younger women. And in fact, um, in women who were um, in their earlier menopausal years with symptoms that it's actually appropriate to treat with estrogen. The, the challenge with um, using estrogen is not everybody feels safe and not everybody's eligible. So when someone who has breast cancer, um, they're not going to use estrogen to treat their hot flashes since breast cancer is a hormone responsive um, disease. So other treatments that have been used um, with um, some success are um, the SSRIs, the antidepressants, SNRIs, um, like uh, Paxil, um, Venlafaxine, um, things that people may use for to treat anxiety or depression. It's been shown to be somewhat helpful. Uh, there are other drugs like gabapentin, um, clonidine, and in some people, just modify, modification of behavior um, can help. So you don't eat spicy food. You wear layers of clothing so that, you know, when you start to feel warm, you take the layers off. Exactly. Um, there is some um, evidence that biofeedback helps some, some people who are affected, um, as well as um, Weight loss, we know that individuals who are heavier have more hot flashes, so obesity is a risk factor for having more severe um, hot flashes. Uh, we know that individuals who are depressed, if you don't, and, and having hot flashes, that you have to treat their depression and their hot flashes to have improvement. So, you know, it's definitely a um, individual kind of management, and so it's really important to, to let your healthcare provider know if you're having symptoms. And, um, and, you know, people should know symptoms can sometimes start in their 40s, and that's the most common, in their mid-40s. Um, for women of color, it can start in their early 40s, and so it can present earlier and last longer. And, um, and if it's really, if it's disrupting one's life, you shouldn't have to suffer. I wanted to ask a little bit about what might be next in treatment of hot flashes. So just last month, you published a study in the journal Obstetrics and Gynecology that's looking at the safety of a couple new treatment options, or at least one. I think I might be mixing up your journal article and your slides here um, for hot flashes. Can you tell me a little bit about that study, um, what you were evaluating and kind of what the goals were? Yeah. So what you're referring to are Skylight studies. Um, we have Skylight 1, uh, 2, through 4. And um, these studies were um, designed to use, uh, to investigate the effectiveness of a drug called phasolinitant, which is a, um, a neurokinin 3 receptor antagonist. And that means that this um, um, drug blocks the receptor that causes hot flashes. 
it is not a hormone. And so you don't have the same risk or concerns that you have with hormones. And that's the drug that we were using. Um, the first study was really looking at um, whether the drug was um, efficacious, meaning did it reduce hot flashes? Did it reduce the, um, the severity of hot flashes? And we also looked at whether it improved sleep. And, and so what we found was the drug um, significantly reduced um, hot flashes by as much as 50% um, within the first 12 weeks. Um, and for, for those who were on placebo, and placebo is basically um, no drugs. Once we started them on the medication, we did what's called a crossover. So after 12 weeks, we um, randomized, meaning we just randomly selected people to take two different doses of the drug. And then we followed them out for a total of 52 weeks. And we found that um, individuals who were on the uh, placebo started to look like the individuals who were on the drugs to begin with. So they had a significant reduction in their hot flashes, in the severity of their hot flashes. They had improvement in sleep. Um, they didn't have a lot of side effects. Um, they didn't have any side effects that one might as associate with um, hormones. Um, uh, there are also um, studies that show that it's effective um, in women who are heavier. Um, so they included heavier women. The study um, was important in my mind because we also included a significant number of, of um, diverse individuals. Oftentimes studies only have one group of people. And so just trying to make sure and understand whether the treatment is effective for um, just about anyone who might need it um, was great. We had a, a about, we have more than 15% of, of kind of non-Caucasian um, people enrolled in the study, which is rare. Um, and so, you know, it's exciting because we now potentially have new options um, for people who cannot or will not take hormones for whatever reason, but who are suffering with hot flashes. Uh, you know, we also see quality of life improvements. And so there are some other things that um, we're excited to, to, you know, potentially affect. In your study, in the Skylight study, what did you learn about the safety of the medications that you were testing? You know, it, there really were no what we call safety signals. Um, and that there were, again, there were a few side effects. Um, you know, we, we did the study during COVID, so that was kind of, you know, um, included as a potential kind of outcome. Um, you know, there are some people who uh, had uh, headaches, uh, but it was a small group of people. Overall, what do you think is most important for people listening to kind of understand or look for in the future of menopause symptom management? I think the most important um, thing that people should know is that they don't have to suffer. You know, there are treatment options because it can be quite disruptive. We know that people who have lots of hot flashes have increased risk for heart disease. Um, we know that people who lose sleep because of hot flashes, you know, they don't fear as well cognitively, so they may feel like they're not working as well in, in terms of their job and not functioning at the same level. Um, and so they really don't have to suffer. And it's so important to talk to your provider about your symptoms that if they're not helping you, 
to seek someone else who will. Um, I will put a cautionary um, comment about um, what we call compounded drugs. So for those who don't know, compounding is the process of combining, mixing, or altering ingredients that creates a medication tailored to a specific patient. Compounded medications, including compounded hormones, are not approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA. For like hormones, uh, those are not been shown to be um, safe if we don't know how much you know hormone is there. Um, so it's really important if you're going to use hormones that you know what you're taking. If you have a uterus, it's important to make sure you use progesterone because otherwise um, there's a risk for um, uterine cancer. Um, and the other thing that people should know is that, you know, over time it does, it does end. Um, and, you know, for people who have lost sleep or who have had some cognitive changes, that all gets better. So. That's very comforting. <laughs> Dr. Neil Perry, thank you so much for taking a little time to talk with me today. It was a real pleasure to have you on the Women's HealthCast. Thank you. And you have a great day, Jackie. Dr. Neil Perry's Skylight Studies, as well as more information on menopause management from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, are linked in this episode's show notes at womenshealthcast.podbean.com or in the episode description on your podcast app. The Women's HealthCast is a production of the UWSMPH Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can listen to the Women's HealthCast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find the UW Department of OBGYN on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the handle at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us in your podcast app and let us know what health issues you'd like to learn about at the link on our podcast page. Thanks for listening.